0: Welcome to episode 105 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is the objects to observe in the April 2021 night sky. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. And we are amateur astronomers. We are not professionals in any way whatsoever. And we love looking at the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody else who likes going out and looking up at the stars. So Shane, you're you're uh, typing away there. You're punching away because... As we were preparing for this uh, podcast here this morning, um, we had our notes all set, and then we were just very quickly, casually seeing if there was any bright comets, and we didn't think there was. But uh, you're you're going to get us some information here because it looks like just very uh, recently in the past, uh, really um, couple weeks that that a comet has has brightened up. So we're going to talk about potentially um, a, a bright comet for or a brighter comet for April visible. Uh, in small telescopes?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is really exciting. So, you know, we, we, we do our monthly what's up or what to observe. Um, mostly the first episode is focused on mostly uh, solar system stuff. So we always like to look to see if there's any comets. And, you know, people that have been listening to this episode for the last couple of months know that we're not anticipating any, you know, noteworthy comets until uh, the end of the year. Um, there's a, what is it? It's Comet Leonard is supposed to be quite bright, uh, like magnitude four is the estimate right now. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's like in November or December, I believe. And um, so, you know, we're anxiously anticipating that, but until that point in time, all of the other comets that were, that we were aware of, I don't believe any of them were brighter than double digit magnitudes, which means they're very, very dim. And you know, not Bain. really yeah. yeah, yeah, they're not really worth uh, observing unless you maybe have larger apertures. Um, but when and we this, checked and this yeah,
0: yeah you, you checked this comet and uh, there's magnitude estimates coming in. Some of them look to be as bright as magnitude 8.5, which which puts it in the range of sort of uh, those 70 millimeter binoculars um, a lot of people have. And you were saying that in Sky in, in our planetarium software, it was magnitude what?
1: 14. 14. So it's exceeding like magnitude estimates, depending on, I guess, which estimate you look at, it's exceeding it by like two to maybe five magnitude, uh, which is like, that's, that's exceptional. Now
0: here's the downside is it could be an outburst and, and that definitely happens. And then as well, the moon is now moving into that part of the sky. So, uh, so there's, there's that. So who knows what's going to happen here over the next, uh, two weeks before, before it's sort of, uh, in a dark sky again. But, uh, anyway, uh, it's something for people to put on their radars for April. We'll talk about that in a moment, but, uh, apart from that, probably the best thing to, to observe would be the, uh, Lyrid, uh, meteor shower this month.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a nice, um, it's a nice meteor shower in terms of the spring is, you know, approaching. So if you live in cold areas like you and I, um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity just to get back out and, and do some observing because the temperatures aren't, uh, you know, as much of a factor anymore. So excited for that.
0: Yeah. And in fact, my winter is, is, is more harsh than yours, it seems.
1: Oh, do tell.
0: <laughs> so, so Shane and I only live about uh, twelve or fifteen kilometers <laughs> apart. And I went up to his place yesterday, and I had to wait for for the snow to melt. We had a couple inches of snow, and uh, and and it was sort of clearing off the streets. It was very wet on the streets, and quite a bit of snow around. And I drove up to uh, to Shane's place on the other side of the city, and uh, lo and behold, uh, you guys just had a uh, uh, a dusting of snow. So uh, your winters are much more mild than mm-hmm. ours.
1: We 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 live in the Regina tropics. That's so why there's. You should consider um, moving here.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, uh, I, I look forward to having some of the bananas that you're growing up there uh, this summer.
1: Yeah, yeah, they should be ready soon.
0: Yeah, good stuff. So planets. <laughs> let's see. So this is the planet uh, focus. Um, and we're looking at Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Capricornus in the morning sky. So these, these episodes are going to be a little bit shorter because really the planets are still very low down, eh?
1: Yeah, there's not a lot actually to be doing in regards to, to the planets. Um, last week I took a look at Mars and wow, you know, the, the neat thing when you observe Mars uh, during opposition is, is you, you watch it build. So, you know, it starts as a very small disk and gets larger and larger every day. But then on the other side of it, you can watch it get smaller and smaller every day. And it is so small compared to what it was during, uh, you know, its peak time. And now that it's getting low in the sky, it's it's quite challenging to uh, tease out any detail. Um, So, yeah, there's it's a little bit of a dry spell uh, for the planetary observing. Um, However... Uh, you know, Jupiter and Saturn are setting up again to be, you know, nice, nice weather targets. Uh, they'll be quite prominent here in a few months, uh, for summer, summer warm temperatures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. sounds good. So right now they're in Capricornus, which is like an autumn constellation, but, uh, in order to see it, you, you're getting up, uh, pretty early in the morning, uh, they're starting to, uh, to become prominent, uh, before the sky, um, gets, gets too bright, um, but then Jupiter is actually continuing on its eastward, uh, motion actually, uh, ends up in Aquarius by the end of the month. So, um, you know, that that's happening, uh, as well, but the good news is they're, they're rising a little bit higher now, um, mm-hmm. as far as like where they are on the ecliptic. So these constellations that they're coming into are, are going to be further, um, uh, above the horizon for us in the, in the Northern hemisphere anyway.
1: Yeah, that, that's something I'm really looking forward to because, Uh, last year Jupiter and Saturn were visible during the warmer months but that means it's usually lower in the sky for us which means more atmosphere to look through and you just don't get the higher quality observations so um, you know it's kind of a a trade-off you know they they move higher in the sky when it gets and then you know they're uh, prominent when it's colder outside like fall winter Um, but regardless Mm -hmm. uh, you know put on a, a warmer jacket and the observing gets a little bit better each year now for a little while.
0: Yeah. And when we get into these oppositions that are, that are in the fall, like when the planets are at their best, um, that can be good because, uh, what I tend to do is just, uh, get up early, um, in like the August and September months. And although it might, might be cool in those early morning hours, but, uh, but not, not nearly as cold as it's going to be, uh, here where we live in November, which can be, uh, Be very frigid, so um, you were saying, yeah, Mars is basically just a pinpoint of light up in Taurus, um, and Neptune is uh, is right next to the Sun, so it's not observable. And Uranus and Venus, uh, they're they're pretty much uh, lost in the bright solar glow right now, unfortunately, so they're they're not even observable at this time,
1: yeah, yeah, it's too bad. A little bit of a dry spell, but it. You know, it gives us an opportunity to look at other things. We'll talk about some lunar events. And then uh, in a week or two, I think we'll record the Deep Sky episode. And, and uh, you know, what spring is famous for is galaxy hunting. So I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, you know, I guess back to you. It uh, looks like we have a, a double shadow transit on Jupiter on April 3rd. Wow. Um, yeah, so looks- these
0: double shadow... So these double shadow transits, um, Shane, have you seen many of these?
1: Yes. Yeah. I've even seen a triple, um, before, but, uh, you know, the doubles, uh, well, anything with multiple transits, uh, you know, they're definitely rare.
0: Yeah. So what we're seeing with a shadow transit on Jupiter is, uh, is basically like a, uh, a solar eclipse, um, that, that's happening on another planet. And whereas with the solar eclipses that, that happen on Earth, our moon is between us and the sun, and it's around its uh, new moon phase, or it's at its new moon phase, and uh, it's projecting uh, its shadow on, on, onto the Earth because the, the sun is directly behind it. Now, there's just a small area of the Earth that will experience um, a solar eclipse. But when we, we look at Jupiter, um, what we're seeing is, is uh, a circle. Um, that shadow of light um, that's being blotted out, and that uh, that will make its way across the cloud tops as as the uh, as that moon passes between the cloud tops uh, and the sun, and so it's it's this pretty much the exact same thing. Although um, here on Earth we're fortunate uh, in a way because the the moon and the sun are approximately the same uh, size in the nighttime sky. It varies little. That's why sometimes we get annular eclipses where you know, you, you can't look at those without uh, solar filters. And then sometimes um, the moon will be uh, much closer. Um, and then that that will sort of blot out, um, you know, even some of the sky around the sun. Um, and then there's times where it's like almost almost a perfect fit. Now in Jupiter, I don't, I don't know how that exactly works out, but you still get the, uh, the shadow of um, the moon on those cloud tops of Jupiter. So when we talk about uh, a shadow transit, that's what we're seeing. And these ones starting in in april april 3rd being the first um for us anyway uh it's right on the horizon Um, but maybe people kind of to the southwest like if maybe you were in california or somewhere um you're going to have uh another 40 minutes of darkness and uh as well um the, the the angles are a little bit better so you might have a shot at, uh, at taking a look at it. And then, uh, you know, as well, I know we have uh, people that we communicate with that are listeners uh, living in Florida. So sometimes uh, Florida might be, uh, you know, that much better still. So there, there's a lot of times I wish I was, I was in Florida.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. bad weather here. Yeah, so. agreed.
0: So then on uh, April 6th, we have, or sorry, April 4th, we have the uh, last quarter moon. So that's when the the moon is going to be uh, in the morning sky and then a couple days or a couple mornings later, the moon and Saturn uh, are just going to be about four degrees apart. So that's actually a good time. Uh, A lot of folks are are up uh, early in the morning. This for us is going to be around I think like 5 a.m. when they're both clearing the horizon or the moon clearing the horizon and then um, Saturn will be uh, four degrees directly above. Now um, one of the things we always like to mention with these, uh, like what is four degrees on the nighttime sky? And we say, well, when you hold your fist out at arm's length, and we're all built to approximately the same proportions, um, whether we're a child or, or an adult, um, if you hold your fist out on the nighttime sky, that's going to be 10 degrees. You kind of need to know that sort of key measure. So this is going to be about half that distance and a binocular field. Typically most binoculars will have a five degree field or larger. So because uh, Saturn and the moon will be uh, just four degrees apart, um, it would be a neat binocular site for people to be able to go out and to see uh, Saturn and the moon together.
1: Yeah. Those pairings when uh, you know, the moon and and the planets get together like that are, are pretty neat to look at. Um, you know binoculars or a wider field view through your telescope and uh you know it's uh, it's pretty it's quite nice to see
0: yeah so that that one should be kind of neat neat to see i might get up and try to take a peek at that and then on the 7th we have jupiter and the moon four degrees apart again so the same sort of thing
1: yeah you know and and for those that observe the jupiter saturn conjunction on december 21st or right around that date it's still kind of neat to me to see them in the night sky and, you know, just how close they are still in the night sky. Um, you know, we shouldn't lose sight that that's still a pretty cool observation to see them near and, uh, you know, occupying the same general area.
0: Yeah. So it's sort of like a a good opportunity for those that maybe had missed. I know lots of people missed, um, the pairing up, but now unlike back, uh, with the great conjunction back in December, we're not going to have the opportunity um, to see them together in, in the same field of view. In most telescopes, although um, like some of our really small, crazy wide field telescopes, like our uh, like my Takahashi 60 millimeter, I can do about a seven and a half degree field of view. Uh, so I, I would actually be able to see um, Saturn and, and the moon together. Uh, but I, I don't know that I'd be able to get Jupiter in there either.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah that would be pretty tough.
0: Yeah, so we'll find it. We'll we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, we get some clear skies coming up here, and uh, and that'll work out. I think I might actually uh, take uh, take those days off work, and make make a plan of that. All right. So April 10th, we're gonna have another shadow transit on Jupiter, um, but this one actually won't be visible from North America. I, I don't think anyway. So one thing that we try to do is um, since starting this podcast, we've we've had lots of listeners from all over the world. And uh, some of the folks in Japan uh, will write us um, and stay in touch with their observations and, uh, and what they're able to see over there. So I know that uh, we have Larry over in Japan. So we kind of put this, this out to him that he'll actually have a good opportunity on the morning of the 10th to try for a double shadow transit. Uh, but that probably Japan is probably going to be the best spot. And so what I'm doing here is I'm just trying to sort of figure it out based on using my planetarium software and kind of picking general areas where, where I know some people have, have written in from, uh, when I'm, when I'm looking at these events, <laughs> give it a shot, right?
1: Yeah. you know I think that's a, that's a cool thing to do. What kind of aperture would you need to observe a double shadow transit on Jupiter, Chris, like, uh, would binos see it? Probably not, but what no. telescope uh, would you need?
0: Yeah, so, so you're right. I think binoculars, um, like a typical binocular, it, it's not going to happen, although you can see the moons of Jupiter with binoculars. So, so it's a good point. You know, when, when Jupiter is uh, is reasonably high in the sky, if you have a, a good pair of 8x40s or, or a 10x50 binocular, you will be able to see the moons of Jupiter, much like uh, how Galileo saw them. Just they're going to look like stars that are kind of, uh, changing positions night, night to night, and that's really cool to watch. Um, but I, I, you, you won't be able to see um, enough of, of the disk of Jupiter to, to be able to, dis- to discern the, uh, the shadows cutting across. Now, um, I, th- I don't think I've seen any with my uh, 60 millimeter yet, but, uh, but I, I did own probably about the most inexpensive 80 millimeter telescope um, that you can get. I actually had, had won a gift certificate at a star party I was at and, uh, and used that in its entirety to buy a telescope. It was like a, a $50 or an $80 gift certificate, and I bought this 80-millimeter telescope when I lived in an apartment. And uh, I used to watch shadow transits with that uh, very inexpensive 80-millimeter telescope. Um, and I have another very inexpensive 80-millimeter telescope today, um, that's sort of a, a modern edition of that. So, um, I think probably with, with anything like, uh, like a 70 millimeter or greater in the 80 millimeter, I can clearly see them. And, uh, I'm going to try for these in, in my 60 as, as we get into summer. So you, you have a, you have a 60 millimeter, uh, telescope as well, I think, or a couple. So maybe you can give it a shot and see if you can see them.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a little William Optic Zenith Star 61 millimeter uh, telescope yeah. that um, is very similar to your TAC in terms of specs. Um, and then I have some older telescopes, like I have a 65 millimeter, uh, 1000 millimeter focal length Takahashi and a, a Zeiss telemeter, which is a 63 millimeter. But um, yeah, I should give that a try. I'm curious now as to what the, the 60 millimeter would show.
0: Yeah, I, I am as well. Um, I think probably with with these kind of 60s, which are a little bit vintage, and uh, I think I think they're out of production, um, you know, but but they have high quality optics. Uh, and uh, I think I think you'd stand a pretty decent chance of seeing, uh, seeing these shadow transits. Um, and sort of one of the things is that you do, do need a bit of power, like I find you know, and, and I'm sure some people could probably use less power or maybe some people use more power. But I find really um, need about 80 to 100 power to really begin to to see them well through through telescopes. But 60 millimeter telescope definitely can uh, can do uh, can do those powers. I typically use my 60 at about uh, 95 power. And and I, I think that should be good enough uh, to see them. I hope anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting experiment.
0: Yeah. So on, uh, on April 12th, um, we have new moon and uh, that's when the moon is, uh, is near the sun in the sky. And it's going to be in the, the daytime sky. It's when we don't see the moon. So that's when we're, we're looking at uh, doing some dark sky observing. So we're going to, we're going to make a, make a plan here to do a, uh, a set of uh a pod or a podcast for, for that period of the, of the, of the month. So we won't get into that. And then uh, on the 14th, we have another Uh, double shadow transit. And this one, uh, uh, maybe uh, Eastern North America will be best. So um, for our friends in Florida, I'm thinking this, this might be their opportunity, especially if they're, uh, they're on the other coast, although I I don't think they are. I think they're on the Gulf coast. Um, But, but they might, they might stand a chance of, of seeing this. Uh, But for my friends where I'm from, I think they're going to, they're going to try for probably observing for this one on, on the 14th because uh, they're in Nova Scotia. I think you'd be uh, you, you'd stand a pretty good chance of actually seeing this uh, this double shadow transit on Jupiter.
1: Yeah, very cool. Lots of double shadow transits this month.
0: Yeah, worth pointing out, I think, I think they're really cool to see. Um, very first one I ever saw when I, I was actually using that 80 millimeter telescope and uh, I'd set it up with the idea of observing uh, a double shadow transit and uh, I was out kind of playing around with it because it was a brand new telescope to me at the time and uh, my cousin will who does the music for our show um, happy to be coming over for Christmas and this was uh, this was around Christmas time we we're having a particularly warm period before Christmas and I was out in the yard with the little telescope and uh, had it pointed at uh, at Jupiter and was kind of nudging it along I just had it on a camera tripod and and uh, he pulled in the driveway and got out and we were we were having a chat, kind of getting caught up or whatever, because he, he was living in another province at the time. Um, anyway, and uh, he said, hey, can, can I take a look? And I said, sure. And I kind of recentered uh, Jupiter really quick after, after our, our lengthy conversation. And he looks in and says, hey, what are these black dots on Jupiter? And so he was <laughs> able to pick them up just like, I'm like, oh, wait, you got to see them first. You know? And I was super jealous. I'll never forget that, that he picked them up uh, right away. Um, so that, that's how easy they can be in, in a really inexpensive, small telescope.
1: Yeah. And I love, I love observing them because I'm fascinated with solar system movement. And, uh, you know, this is a way to watch some of that happen, especially yeah. if you can catch, um, uh, the shadow, like at the limb, which is the edge of the, the planetary disc. Um, if, if you watch it, you know, say from the middle, it doesn't seem to really move with any, uh, you know, with any speed at all. But when it's close to the edge, it's incredible how fast it just drifts right off. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think there's some historical importance of shadow transits as well. I know for um, early mariners at sea, um, who, who had telescopes, they were they were trying to use them to uh, to fix their position, um, you know, on, on the ocean. Um, but my understanding is actually it, it it wasn't as good as just using the old sextants uh, and and the sun um, and Uh, other means for for actually determining uh, your position because of the uh, well the the limb darkening on Jupiter actually interferes with uh, when you'll actually be able to see them as well as like altitude from the horizon and other other uh, impacts on when when you can see them but but they did a did attempt to uh, to use those uh, for a variety of purposes anyway we're not going to get into that this time April 17th uh Mars um it, it actually, there's an occultation of Mars by the moon for Central and East Africa, India, and the Middle East. And uh, so that could be an opportunity to take a look uh, if you're in those uh, areas or those regions um, at the moon actually covering up Mars, which would be really cool. And then often somebody somewhere uh, ends up taking a photo. And it looks really neat if, if they're able to capture any kind of surface detail. Like I know one of the polar caps on Mars has been uh, growing uh, in the past several months. And so you, you might just be able to see like the disc of Mars and the polar cap as it's kind of getting covered up by the moon. And that would be super, super cool to see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That would be a really neat observation.
0: So here in North America, they, they don't even really get that close. So I have uh, have an image here, Shane, and, and uh, it's a circle eight degrees, um, which is sort of the sharp field of, of my binoculars. And uh, you'd just be able to get Mars and the moon in the same field of my widest field binocular.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty tight. You're definitely pushing the limits at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that can kind of be neat to, to see as well. And I know uh, in our past episode, we were talking about these, these neat little um, ultra-wide field 50 millimeter telescopes. Um, that, that you've been uh, kind enough to kind of get working for us. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to getting a wide field uh, eyepiece and, and getting that instrument working and then maybe taking it out because I think with, with my widest field, I get about a 10 degree field of view, which is uh, your, your fist at arm's length. So I can actually take in uh, that large a swath of sky. And so uh, being able to do, this, do so will enable me to, to see all kinds of uh, stars and planets uh, as they pass by the moon, because because typically um, the moon and the planets will will be within 10 or 12 degrees of each other in the night sky at some point uh, during the month for for every observer on the planet, because the moon and the planets travel along the path we call the ecliptic, which is where uh, eclipses occur. And so that's the plane of our solar system and everything's sort of generally in that same vicinity. So I'm really looking forward to uh, using a a little kind of basically what would be a finder scope on most telescopes. And that's actually the original purpose of me getting it is, is to use it as a finder, but I'm also going to use it uh, in in this sort of novel respect uh, to be able to see uh, the moon and planets and and other large uh, extended features uh, of the night sky.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Great telescope or great instrument for that purpose, for sure. Maybe one of the best.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So on April 20th, we have the first quarter moon. What do you think about that, Shane?
1: Um, I think we should move on to what's happening on April twenty second. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I, I shouldn't say that. You know, the the moon, um, the best time to observe it is when there's a terminator, or when there, when it's not a full moon. So, yeah. first quarter is is really just sort of indicating that you know you're you're right in the heart of really good lunar observing. So. Um, you know, plan your features or craters that you want to see and, uh, you know, uh, get out there because, hey, it's warming up. It's, uh, it's time to do some observing. And for people
0: that have never um, used a binocular on the night sky before, and this is, this is one thing I do when I'm, I'm teaching my astronomy course and actually start teaching my next course that week. And what, what I'll be asking people to do is, is to go and and dig out those binoculars from that, that back closet somewhere or from grab them from above the fridge or wherever they have them hanging out. And there, so many people who, who come to the class um, that are lo- looking to get into astronomy have never done this before. And it's, and it's really so much fun. I say, just, just go and grab those binoculars, whatever they are, or, or if you don't have a pair, just, just call your neighbor and borrow a pair or or whatever, uh, you don't need to go and buy a pair. Or if you do just just go to, uh, um, you know, go to uh, Goodwill or a discount place. And you know, they usually have a, have one of those stores. And inevitably, they have a pair of binoculars there and just buy the most inexpensive ones you can get, take those out and point those at the first quarter moon. And, uh, and then just report back what you see, you don't, you don't need to find any craters or anything like that. And then it's always, there's always at least one person that goes in and does this. And uh, they're so enthusiastic about astronomy after they do that and get blown away by seeing the craters on the moon through a pair of binoculars for the first time. Um, they can't get over it. They, they can't get over the fact that a pair of binoculars can actually uh, really begin to show you uh, a lot of detail on the moon.
1: Yeah, great point. Any, any kind of optical aid on the moon uh, really brings out detail, and the more like the larger the aperture or the more magnification you can put at it, um, it's incredible, right? You start to see craters within craters, and more and more and more uh, detail becomes visible. So it's one of the most interesting targets I think you can look at in the sky in terms of uh, like really a never-ending amount of detail, uh, depending on you know your aperture.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really worth your while. So if people are listening and they're just kind of casually listening to these these podcasts, and I know this one will go out in astronomy, a three hundred sixty-five days of astronomy, um, which we love being a part of. Um, but if you if you've never gone and and looked at the moon through a pair of binoculars and you just have them sitting around, you're like, I'm here. I know this is you know, hey, it just happens to be April twentieth, um, or I know that's coming up, but I'm I'm free that night, or maybe maybe you're bored because of uh, pandemic restrictions, like like we're under here. And, uh, you know, uh, you do already have a pair of binoculars and just grab them and just, just walk out, um, wherever it's safe to do so and, uh, and point them at the moon. And I think you'll be truly astounded, you know, and you don't need to know, this is one thing I try to stress, stress with people as well. You don't need to know like all the craters and what everything is called up there. And I think sometimes that overwhelms people as well. Like uh, all the features on the moon are named and you can certainly, um, go and find a really good um, resources for that. One of them in, is at the RASC.ca, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And they have this really great Explore the Moon guide. So if you go to the RASC.ca and you just go to the search box and go Explore Moon or Explore the Moon, in the search box, you will, you will find uh, a great little set of finder charts for the moon, everything that you can see uh, through binoculars. And they have like a little program in that that, uh, that you can do. And it's free. This is just a free... Uh, resource that uh, that our organization, the RISC, does just as a, as a public service.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that explore the moon uh, uh, certificate is really or program is really interesting. And then uh, the Isabel Williamson uh, lunar observing program is like exceptionally thorough. And if you're a lunar nut, um, that Isabel Williamson gives, I think it's like about a hundred or so features. But then there's like a subset list of challenge features, which I think brings it to over 200 things to observe. Um, So again, for all the lunar nuts out there, uh, that's, that's a great list too.
0: Yeah. And uh, Isabel Williamson, of course, was, uh, was a a great amateur astronomer from, uh, from Quebec here in Canada. And uh, that's, that ended up being how that program uh, got its name. So yeah, it's kind of homage to, uh, to her and her great observations and, contributions to astronomy here in Canada. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So on April 22nd, we have uh, probably perhaps the best uh, event of the month. I know when I was making up these notes, that was going to be the best event of the month, but potentially we might have um, a comet that's getting brighter. But yeah, let's talk about the Lyrid meteor shower in the early morning of April 22nd. Shane, what do you think?
1: Um, so... Look, let me just see here. Um, Yeah, early morning. uh, It'll be in the east and the moon is setting at around four in the morning. Um, So generally, if you want to catch a meteor shower, you want the moon to be not in the sky because the brightness from the moon can wash out a lot of the meteors. Um, So if you're interested in this meteor shower, uh, try to time it with between moonset and sunrise. And that's when you're going to see the most amount of meteors in the sky. Um, I'm not sure what this one peaks out at or what it typically has in terms of number of meteors per hour. Do you, do you know that offhand, Chris?
0: Yeah, so you, you can get quite a few. So uh, this one only averages about 5 to 20 per hour, and it really mm-hmm. averages about uh, about 10 meteors uh, per hour. Now, when it comes to observing meteor showers, you want to try to get to the darkest place that you can. You don't need a telescope <laughs> or binoculars to observe a meteor shower, um, but you do need as dark a sky as possible. Unfortunately, for, for many of us who, who live in the city, that means you're going to be going for uh, a bit of a drive. Um, but this one can be worthwhile because these meteors can be particularly bright. And uh, as well, I should mention that that the meteors from uh, for a meteor shower, they actually originate from comets. So, There's comets in orbit around the sun, just like we're in orbit around the sun. And then what happens is, as those comets orbit, um, they come in close to the sun, they brighten up. And that brightening is actually um, a process of the comet uh, warming. And, And what we actually see is particles and material coming off of those comets and those materials go into into that orbit that the comet is on. So even when the comet isn't isn't there and visible, this material is kind of left over in in that orbit that that the comet had previously gone through. So in the case of the Lyrids, what we're actually seeing here is uh, cometary debris from Comet uh, C eighteen sixty one G one Thatcher, which is uh, which is a, a, a comet that. Uh, that was discovered in 1861. Uh, although it's a relatively short period of comet, uh, sorry, short period uh, comet and has an orbit of about 415 years, um, you know, we, we still will see uh, meteors uh, every year at about this time. And the meteors from the Lyrids, they've been reported since about uh, about 687 BC. So it goes back uh, quite a long time.
1: Yeah. And um, just to add on a little bit to the, the you know, how meteors are formed, Uh, that comet debris hits Earth's atmosphere and burns up. And then we see, you know, these streaks of light across the sky. Uh, we call them meteors. Some people call them shooting stars. Um, basically what you're seeing are grains of sand burning up in the atmosphere. Uh, if you see a real bright one, that's probably the size of a, like a pea or a small pebble. Um, and it just burns up, uh, at, at a high velocity as it's hitting the atmosphere. So kind of a it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. to think about how much light you know a grain of sand almost or you know something the size of a small grain of sand can uh, can produce
0: yeah it's pretty pretty amazing to uh, to see those come whipping in so yeah, for sure on uh, on about the the end of the month on the 27th we're going to see yet another supermoon I actually i think there's a supermoon this month too on the 28th or something like that so i think we're we're treated to yet another supermoon. So, um, these supermoons are something that people can get pretty, uh, excited about. And and there's, there's typically, um, quite a few stories in the media Though I haven't seen the stories yet, um, for, for this set of supermoons. Um, but the moon is only about half a degree in the nighttime sky. I think technically it's like 0.52 degrees. Now we talked about degrees earlier where you hold your fist at arm's length. That's 10 degrees. You might think the moon is really, really big and it, it definitely is a big object on the night sky, but it's only half a degree. And that actual size would be about the size of, uh, uh, of a pencil eraser sort of looked at and on. So they're really, uh, the moon is really uh, not that large when you actually compare it to, uh, you know, to, to the size of the whole night sky. And uh, when something that small is only going to be a few percent, um, larger or smaller, um, it's going to be very difficult to, to notice, especially when you don't have anything to compare it to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more of a, like, I think it's an interesting, uh, photographic, um, target, um, yeah. you know, take a, take a photograph of a super moon and then use the exact same camera settings on a non supermoon and then just compare the photos and see the difference in size. Um, I have seen those published in magazines and online. And it is interesting to see, um, you know, the, the super moon uh, and its, you know, slightly larger diameter. Um, but without that photographic um, kind of A-B comparison, it's I don't know if I would be able to detect it with my eye. Uh, I, I don't think I would.
0: No, and uh, so I've actually done a lot of unaided, naked eye observing of of the moon, and I've I've done a lot of sketches uh, alongside my friend Clark, um, who's the chair of the the history committee in our organization, and we've uh, compared notes. And I would say it's ambiguous at best if we could see it. So we we set up a, a pretty dedicated campaign. Um, one year to, to do a lot of uh, moon observations without optics. And uh, I would say it, it's inconclusive. I think maybe there was, there was once I, I might say that I was able to detect that it was larger, um, but it's inconclusive at best whether or not we could do it. But I, I think that anybody uh, who is getting interested in looking uh, at the nighttime sky sh- certainly should be a- encouraged to do so. So if, if it's uh, if it's getting you motivated to go out and look at the sky, because um, they're talking about super moons, um, you know, Hey, that's, that's great. Um, but certainly I think there's a lot of other more interesting and easier to see things. Like I said, um, I think you should go out and look at the uh, first quarter moon when that's happening on the uh, 20th of the month with your binoculars. And I think that definitely is something that's gonna, that's really going to blow you away if you've never looked uh, at the moon with binoculars before. That, that would be the time to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, if you have binoculars, look at the moon during any of its phases. Um, as long as it's not a full moon, the amount of detail that you'll see is incredible. Uh, and if you look at the moon right near where that dark line is, like where the light transitions to darkness... Um, that's where you typically see a lot of the detail and we refer to that as the terminator. Um, as many people who listen to our podcast are, uh, probably getting sick of us saying that, but, but, you know, we like to mention uh, some of those details for anybody that might be listening to it for the first time. So Shane, we started,
0: mm-hmm. um, this, <laughs> this session today, we're actually late in starting our recording. And the reason why we were late was because, um, uh, well, we, we make up these notes and we actually made up most of our notes uh, some time ago. And then we, we go over them a little bit prior to, to the recording and then we see what else uh, might be of interest there. And we use um, some, some resources online to see if there's any uh, bright comments and there hasn't been and no bright comments to be expected. But when we actually took a look at... Um, and, and the, the website is, uh, is aerith.net and slash comet. And this is a, a well-known comet um, website for, for finding out information on comets. Um, we actually discovered that uh, Comet uh, R4 Atlas uh, appears to be brightening. There's some uh, estimates that that uh, comet is actually uh, being reported as getting close to eighth magnitude and brightness, which puts it well in the range of small telescopes. And uh, now sometimes comets will just flare up, um, but certainly this, this flare up has been lasting for um, a couple of weeks now, going from 13th magnitude to eighth magnitude. Um, and to give people uh, a general idea of how bright that is, so a 13th magnitude star would be really difficult to see Um, from the city through a telescope but with with a pretty good eight inch telescope in a really really dark location you'd probably be able to see 13th magnitude stars reasonably Um, and and so if a comet was 13th magnitude it'd probably be even a little bit more difficult to see than those stars now an eighth magnitude star um, from the city in a in an eight inch telescope is going to actually be relatively easy to see and an eighth magnitude comet would be uh, possible to see, you'd likely be able to see it. So that's the difference, uh, more or less, right there. That these uh, these magnitudes are are such that uh, if if it does continue to brighten in this in this way, that this comet uh, could become uh, relatively easy to see, maybe even in binoculars uh, in the coming weeks. So right now we're looking at um, last quarter moon on the fourth. So we're, we're looking at uh, at least probably another week or so from when this podcast goes live, I'm going to say probably about, and I have a lunar phase calendar up, looks like uh, the, the waning crescent moon uh, by Thursday, the 8th is going to be uh, thin enough and far enough uh, on the horizon that it's not going to be impinging uh, too much on the nighttime sky. And that uh, let's see by April 8th, the comet Atlas will be uh, along the ecliptic. It will be in Aquarius and it will be, I don't know, it looks like maybe 10 degrees just southwest uh, of uh, the bright star uh, Altair in the, in the constellation of Aquila. And certainly if it is brightening up uh, into 8th magnitude or so, um, you should be able to pick it up in a wide field telescope in that area from a dark site.
1: Yeah, this is, this is really exciting. Um, this comet, um, like right now, roughly. It should be, or the original estimates had it at like around magnitude 11, it looks like, um, which is uh, not a spectacular comet. Um, but the actual observed magnitudes are closer to eight and a half, it looks like, or somewhere between eight and a half and 10,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is pretty substantial. And the brightest this thing was forecasted or, or estimated to be would have been probably somewhere between nine and 10 magnitude, but we're already getting reports that it's brighter than that. Um, now, as we've stated before, comet uh, estimates and trying to determine how bright they are, is, uh, it's, it's, almost, it's very difficult to uh, predict with accuracy because there's so many variables uh, that impact a comet's brightness. Um, so the thing to do is if you have an opportunity to look at this thing, do it because, you know, it, it may not get any brighter, but it may continue to get brighter and brighter. So if you have some observations along the way, it it will be neat to watch this, uh, this comet grow and evolve in terms of its magnitude. Um, I'm not very sure if it has like the traditional comet tail. Uh, I see one photograph here of its discovery when it was closer to 20 magnitude, which, you know, is quite dim that, uh, it didn't have much of a tail, but if you're looking for this thing, um, essentially what you're looking for is like kind of a, a fuzzy puff of light almost, Mm -hmm. um, amongst the stars that you can't focus into a, you know, a, a pinpoint. Um, and that is likely it if you're in the right part of the sky. Um, and then, you know, use some different magnifications, And use averted vision. Um, So averted vision is you get the comet in your field of view, but then don't look directly at it. Look at a, a, you know, just above it or just below it or whatever, uh, and then use your peripheral uh, vision because it's a little more sensitive to that faint, diffused light. Um, And you might actually see more of the extent of the comet using your peripheral vision. So I'm definitely going to give this a try, even for my backyard, um, just to see what it looks like. Uh, but definitely would like to get outside of the city as well uh, to to see what it might uh, look like under a darker sky.
0: Yeah, and and although it's uh, coming up in the morning sky, and and the mornings are are getting shorter in in the northern hemisphere here, just because we're we're getting more sunlight um, by uh, by the nineteenth of the month, uh, it's going to be up into Hercules. Um, so that's going to be fairly high up uh, yeah. in the nighttime sky, and then as as we get into um, the end of April and, and beginning of, of May, you know, hopefully, um, you know, we get some, some good nights there. Um, when the moon's down in the sky, um, it actually will end up in the, in the evening sky in, into May. And, uh, if it is bright at that time, it, it could be, uh, it could be a nice, uh, nice comet for, for May skies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for this one. Hopefully it continues to brighten up. Um, yeah. you know, it's exciting. Yeah. You <laughs> never know. Um, And this is part of the, I think this is part of the intrigue because you don't know it's, uh, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Christmas time almost, or, you know, your, the anticipation sometimes is more than the actual result, but it's still fun to, uh, to be able to observe these things because sometimes you can, like, we were really treated last year to, uh, you know, an outstanding comet, um, but that's not very common. In fact, even like good telescopic comets, you might only get a couple a year. Um, and even then sometimes you go through long dry spells where there's just really nothing to observe. So, yeah. uh, let's see what this one turns into. I'm, I'm quite excited. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, you know, and other good websites, uh, out there will, will be, uh, will be publicizing that if, if it does brighten up, but, uh, you know, probably two weeks out now and, uh, and here we go. Like it looks like we might have uh, have a comet that you can see you'll need a telescope. And I would definitely say like you're, you're looking at using a, at least a five inch uh, or larger telescope, probably to have a reasonably good chance of hunting this down. Won't be uh, a bright comet uh, at this time, but something that you can see in uh, in a good size uh, amateur telescope. So I just want to make that clear. This is not like going to be uh, a repeat of what we had last summer, which was a bright naked eye comet. Um, this is, this is something telescopic, but we didn't think we were going to have any uh, telescopic comets this month. And, and here we go. Uh, looks like we, uh, we probably have, have one that can be seen with, uh, with good size amateur equipment.
1: Mm-hmm. And if it does get to that magnitude eight range, um, you know, even a, a decent pair of binoculars uh, have the possibility of bringing it in. So, yeah. Um, if, all, if all you have is binoculars, uh, give it a try. Maybe you'll be able to observe it. And uh, yeah. if you do, um, you know, I think we definitely love to hear about it. We've kind of stopped promoting our email address because um, we, we launched a website, actualastronomy.com. We have a contact form there that you can use to reach out to us. Um, but we love to hear about observing reports, whether it's this comet or whatever you might be looking at. And um, you know, if you do want to share your observing report, just email us at actualastronomy at gmail.com.
0: Well, Shane, that sounds like a good place for us to end things for the month.
1: Yeah, perfect. Well thanks, Chris.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.